before the pandemic, actually, we had been hearing for many years from election officials across the country that they were having a lot of difficulty recruiting and retaining poll workers to work with them. It takes a lot of people to run an election. On election day, it takes about a million people across the country to run polling places. And in a primary, it's less. It's probably 600, 700,000 people. But that's a lot of people that you need to recruit to run elections across the country. And that's left up to generally local election officials who have to go out and work with the political parties to get people to work at the polls. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. This is a podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. Today is a special episode on the Election Assistance Commission, what it is and its priorities. And we are joined today by the chairwoman of the Election Assistance Commission, Christy McCormick. Christy was a senior trial attorney at the Department of Justice in the voting section of the Civil Rights Division. She had previously served in the Attorney General's Office of Virginia. Had some interesting time going to Iraq, working with the Iraqi government on elections, and then subsequently has been on the Election Assistance Commissioner as a commissioner. Welcome to the voting booth. Thank you, John. So I think I thought we'd start with just reminding our listeners about the Election Assistance Commission. I'll say a few words, but if you would just fill in and give a broad view of what it is. The Election Assistance Commission was created back after the Bush v. Gore 2000 election. The, the act was called the Help America Vote Act. It was the first time that that federal money was going to be going out to the states and localities to be used on elections. And this entity was created. It's a bipartisan commission with, with two Republican and two Democratic commissioners. And it really does serve as an advisory body that, that doesn't uh, run elections in the country, but it has functions relating to the testing of voting machines and technology. It serves as a clearinghouse. And it's here in Washington in some ways for us to gather up information from the states and localities so the Washington policymakers understand better what's going on. So that was my attempt at the EAC, but let's yeah, that, hear from you. That was, a, that was a good synopsis of the EAC. I would say the only other part of our mission that you didn't mention was that we also distribute monies that Congress appropriates to the states. And at the beginning of the EAC back in 2000, I don't know what it was, four, three, three four, somewhere in there. Congress had appropriated over $3 billion to the EAC to distribute to the states. The money's been a little bit sparser as the years have gone on, but the last few years, Congress has seen to, to continue giving money to the states to run elections. And the main focus of that money is to improve elections for federal office. So our part in it is just really federal, but we do advise and help election officials run their elections, whether it's local, state, or federal elections. So again, you're right, we don't run elections. And as Ronald Reagan once said, beware of someone from the government coming and saying, we're here to help, but that's actually what we do. We're a customer service agency, and we're out in the states and in the territories helping, federal, helping state and local election officials run their elections. You have interesting experience in elections prior to coming to the commission, but the one I think that, that our listeners might be interested in hearing more about was the time that you spent in Iraq thinking about setting up voting in a, in a new democracy, in a place that, that hadn't had established procedures. Just tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, this was actually the second election that they held, national election. I was there from 2009 through 2010 as the U.S. election 
expert sent on behalf of the Justice Department. I was asked by the Deputy Attorney General to go over and and help advise on elections and rule of law matters. I probably did more on rule of law matters than I did on elections, but elections was a big part of my portfolio. We helped the Iraqi Election Commission set up the election. They actually did an incredible job, I would say better than some of our our elections that I've seen here. I was very transparent. We had a huge recount actually after the election. We had to recount over two and a half million ballots from the Baghdad area, which required renting a hotel, the Al Rashid Hotel, and setting up tables all over the hotel and having teams review huge ballots, the gigantic poster sized ballots, and then an observation teams as well. And that took several weeks. So that was kind of an interesting time. The Iraqi citizens were very excited to vote. Some of my great memories are over there people being so proud of having their purple thumbs and sticking them up in the air. And I was actually assigned to the southern part of Iraq on election day. Iraq actually had two election days. One was for the military and the police to vote. That was the day before the actual election day. And then the general public voted the second day. And I was in the southern part of the country in Al-Qut. And it was interesting to see that we had more women come out and vote than men, which was a real eye-opener. So it was, it was extremely interesting and dangerous. We did have issues sending reports back to the U.S. and to our headquarters. We had cell phones and sat phones, both of which didn't work. And we had gone out with the military and ended up using codes that we sent through the military Blue Force trackers in their vehicles to be able to send reports back about what was going on out in the field. So it was an interesting time. Uh, I would say that the rule of law initiatives were... Uh, robust. I met with the chief of the Iraqi Supreme Court every week. We were concerned about uh, judges being assassinated. We actually lost 15 judges while I was over there, which was very sad. We worked in the prisons. We worked with the defense bar. Iraq was confession-based system, and we were teaching them about taking evidence, how to lock down a crime scene, how to have a trial. So many different programs, and it was just you know, a great experience in spite of the fact that we were mortared every day. So maybe we could transition to a, what we hope is a calmer set of circumstances <laughs> in our American elections. Yes. And go to that part of the mission of the EAC that's related to technology and the voting systems. And I'll, again, say a little bit, but I, I think we should, we might want to step back a little bit for some of our viewers and listeners because we're, we're using terms like VVSG and E-STEP mm-hmm. and other jargon, but... Broadly speaking, the EAC is involved with the testing and certification of machines, but they're they're doing that with with partners. They're voluntary standards that the states have. So, so first, before getting into what's new in the VVSG and this potential E-step process, tell us just broadly how you would describe to the average American the EAC's role in making sure that the voting technology is up to certain standards. Sure. So, when the Help America Vote Act was passed. A big concern was that a lot of the states were still using very outmoded voting systems, including the lever machines, if you recall those machines, and some other machines with, you know, things like butterfly ballots that we saw down in Florida in 2000, and decided we needed to have a more robust testing regime of the machines on the federal level. Uh, One of the reasons there was so much money provided to the states was to replace voting equipment, and so that we could upgrade the technology in elections. And so the Help America Vote Act 
required the EAC to set up a testing and certification program. And part of that was to set guidelines and standards by which those machines would be tested. We also had advisory boards set up and required by Congress to help us write those those requirements. We have three statutory boards right now that work on those requirements and provide input to what we should be testing and how we should be testing it. We also work with the National Institute of Standards and Technology on those standards as well. The standards, which you mentioned, are called the Voluntary Voting Systems Guidelines. VVSG, right? For short. And it is a very acronym-heavy business. So the VVSG is a voluntary program that states can decide whether they're going to require for their voting systems or not, or they can use a part of our regime. So that might include testing, requiring testing to our standards, or using our laboratories to do the testing. We credit the laboratories that do the testing, along with NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and then, or using our certification program in some way. So I would say most of the states, probably 40 or more, actually use our system or part of our testing and certification system. And then a few do their own testing. Some do their own testing in addition to our testing as well. And so the machines come in, they're submitted by the vendors who manufacture those machines. They submit them to one of our laboratories and are tested against all of the requirements. There are testing regimes for each of the requirements. And then if they pass, they get a sticker slapped on the back of the machine that says certified by the Election Assistance Commission. And and give us just a small example of the types of... Types of things. things So security. Right. You know, are the machines safe? Usability, or, you know, if a, if a voter goes up to the machine, is the screen large enough? Is the type large enough? Can they get it in different languages? How do they turn pages if there's multiple pages on a ballot? Things of that nature. Are they touch screen? Do they have a ballot marking device where you can mark your own ballot and then send it through the machine attached? There's so many different variations of the machines. And we test to as many of those types of machines as we can. And, you know, we look at accessibility for those voters who have challenges, whether it be hearing or sight or just hand control, you know, just different kinds of of disabilities that they might have to deal with. And, you know, there's a growing portion of our population that is dealing with disabilities. So that's an important role for the EAC. So you developed some standards and testing and guidelines, and there's been testing about it in various labs, but technology changes over time. And so yes. now you have these standards and guidelines, which are older. And so we, we talked about VVSG, but now we're talking about VVSG2. So I want to hear right. what that is and what the timeline is uh, and what the EAC is doing. And then I'll, I'll give you a little hint to what we were talking about, the E-STEP. You can explain that specifically later, okay. but what you're talking about now is the voting System, the systems that actually cast votes. So when a, when a voter goes in and uses a type of machine, whether it's a scanner or pushing right. something, but there are other types of technology too, which maybe we should be testing that. Maybe that's the E-Step program. So that's tell right. us a little bit about VVSG, VVSG2, and what you're doing mm-hmm. to update where we are. So v, the, the guide, current guidelines, uh, which we will stop testing to sometime this month, I don't remember the exact date, but it's coming up very, very soon. But those guidelines and requirements were written back in 2005 before the advent of the iPhone. So that tells you how old those standards are. We did have one update in the middle, which we called VVSG 1.1, which no 
manufacturer submitted a system to be tested by, they could still get their systems tested under the original uh, requirements. But it's been a long time and we needed to upgrade our requirements to you know today's standard of technology. And obviously technology has changed a huge amount over the past 15 to 20 years. And so we had to capture those changes and make updates to those requirements. And so we've increased the security requirements and the usability requirements. We now require software independence and penetration testing. And at the time when those were those guidelines were passed, we didn't really think too much about security and nation states trying to get into our voting equipment, our voting machines. We do have to worry about that now. And so we have to have a testing regime that can keep ahead of the bad guys. And that's part of why we've updated the, the requirements. So those requirements we passed in March of 2021. We had to go through the accreditation process for the laboratories, which both laboratories got accredited by last November. And then we had a one-year run-up to sort of the end of VVSG 1.0 and 1.1. And now starting this month, which it's been a year since we accredited the laboratories, we will be only testing systems to VVSG 2.0. We do have some ability to continue to update the machines that we certified under 1.1 for you know, updates in software and things like that, because we realize that a lot of jurisdictions will keep using those machines. They're perfectly safe and they're perfectly secure, but we are going to start requiring these more stringent testing requirements to be met before new machines, new systems can be put on the market. So essentially, you're now going to be open for business for manufacturers to have new systems that come to you and say, can we meet your new That's standards? Right. Can we meet the VVS? G2 standards, and then allow all the states out there to say, well, now the EAC is, has uh, these, these, these manufacturers have passed. We should decide whether we want to adopt it or not based on our law and other, other things. That's well. right. right. And we do have one system that's already in for sub submission. One company has submitted their brand new system for testing against the new standards, and hopefully we'll see more soon. And then just to go into the last piece of this, the the E-STEP, and you yes. can use that, tell us what that acronym stands for, but there are many other areas of elections that we've started to use technology in, and not yes. just the actual casting of votes. Maybe when you check in voting, you might see a, what is called the E-poll book. Electronic poll book, holding, right. holding a little tablet and checking you in, or or a system that might uh, tabulate the results or send send the results up to the, to the state. Variety of things which hadn't been subjected to any standards or testing, and now potentially we're going to be looking at some of those. Yes. So E-STEP stands for Election Supporting Technology Testing Program. So that is all of those types of equipment that you described, the electronic poll books, election night reporting systems, election management systems, ballot delivery, things of that nature that you're right, have not been tested and have not had a testing regime. We've never had standards for those. Some of the states have some standards, but it is not a national requirement or, or even a, a national system that they can get their, their equipment tested, the vendors can get their equipment tested by. So the commissioners, we go out a lot into the country and meet with election officials. We've been hearing a lot for many years that a testing regime is needed for this type of equipment. And so we took that very seriously and we started a pilot program. We started small. We've just completed a pilot on testing electronic poll books. We had a number of manufacturers and a couple of state, what we call homegrown systems, come in for testing. All the systems passed. 
So they're all okay for use in 2024, according to our testers. But we want to formalize this program. We, we don't want to make sure that we can move forward and start testing those other kinds of election supporting technologies. And so we will be one by one doing pilot programs for the different types of technology and setting up corresponding requirements so that all those kinds of equipments can be tested and certified as meeting a basic standard. So I've been asking a lot of the questions in part because we're trying to do election certification for dummies here, plain spoken. <laughs> but I'm going to turn to your fellow commissioner, Don yes. Palmer, and uh, make sure you don't get too technical and drop too many <laughs> acronyms. But Don probably has some follow-up questions about this and some other things. Just a quick story before we get going on that. Most people don't know that Don and I met we started at the Department of Justice on the very same day, and we had to go through some sort of training class. That's right. Ended up on a bus together <laughs> trying to find our section because DOJ is, has many, many locations. And we took this circulating bus around D.C. and finally got off at our where our section, the building that our section was in, and realized that we could have walked to the place much faster than it took to take the bus. But it was a pretty funny way to get to know each other because we were the only two on the bus, as I recall, driving around Washington, D.C. Yeah, we were the only stupid ones. That, that's for <laughs> sure. You know, but our time at the Department of Justice, John, was very, you know, it was actually very helpful in our current role because one of the laws that the Department of Justice enforce is, of course, the Help America Vote Act, HAVA. And in fact, you know, we were there right when it was being implemented in the states. And we were the first attorneys to actually work a case, on yeah. HAVA enforcement. That's right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really was a big lift for the states and counties uh, uh, across the country. People don't realize it. But what I realized, particularly looking at HAVA and then later the MOVE Act, was you know sometimes for, for overseas yes. voters yes. these are for the yeah. these are that, you know some modification of the overseas and military right. voters it allowed sort of the ballot delivery particularly that in the 45 days prior to the election that there would be additional time but even small changes in the law and voting require a lot of implementation in the states and the Department of Justice enforced those. So that's where I first met Chairwoman McCormick was at the Department of Justice and, and in part enforcing the Help America Vote Act. So yeah. in our current role, it actually gives us some insight into how these laws are being implemented in the states. Of course, we, you went on to other things in between, <laughs> as did I. And, right. and then we ended up on the commission together, which was kind of interesting. So, Well, I th think one of the questions, Commissioner McCormick, that we often get is how are we communicating this VVSG 1.0 to 2.0 migration to the public and how do we calm the nerves of folks across the country as we transition to higher technology, to better technology? There will be a, a learning curve and there'll right. be a, how are we communicating that and what are the important things to take away from, you know, that transition? Yeah, well, we're working with the states and we're getting out to the media as much as we can. Uh, obviously, we're a very, very small, small but mighty agency. It takes some money to get out there and get get that communicated but we're you know we've held press press days where we've talked about it we've worked with the different state election directors and local election officials to get the word out through their channels of communication we put it on social media we talk about it at every conference that we go to about the migration from one system to the other one of the things we like to compare it to is you know when you buy a new car Obviously, there's new standards for those cars, cafe standards and things. That doesn't mean the car that you're driving isn't still usable and, and still safe. And same thing goes for this 
migration from one set of standards to the other. So so we're not recalling the voting machines exactly. or decertifying them. They still have the full faith of that testing lab. That's, that's right. And in fact, in 2024, voters will not see these new systems. Those systems will be coming in subsequent years. They'll still be voting on equipment that has been certified to our original standards. And that equipment is safe. It's been through a long testing process, many layers, both state and federal and local as well. And there's logic and accuracy testing before each and every election. They take out every machine and run ballots through them. Often that's open to the public. So there's multiple, multiple layers of testing on these machines. So one question I wanted to ask you is, you know, on the electronic poll book or what we're now calling election supporting technology, because it's more than just poll books, right? right? It's all types of voter registration systems, yes. you know, these type of issues. What are the national security implications of this? You know, is this why we are testing and there's been such a demand for the testing of these sort of systems? I think it is. I mean, we've had in recent years reports of attempted hacks by nation state actors and other people. And I think that the the public is very concerned about the security of our systems and we're responding to that. And we want to make sure that they have confidence that, that the machines that they're voting on are safe and secure. They aren't connected to the internet, that they can't be penetrated. I know there's been a few reports out there of people hacking into machines, but generally it's not under the same conditions that would be required on election day or, you know, for people to be able to get to those machines and and actually in real time and in real circumstances carry out those hacks. But we have to be careful, make sure that our systems are, are secure. And I think that's part of it. Yeah, I think we're concerned about it. And so just to clarify, back in 2016, there was worry about foreign influence, foreign interference, and there were some attempts to get into some of our systems. So to be clear, we don't have any evidence that anyone ever got into a voting machine exactly. to change a vote, flip a vote. We, we, have, we know nothing about that. We did have some evidence of sub-actors trying to see inside or perhaps even try to change, but certainly to see inside some voter registration system, which is right. serious, but not quite as serious. But these types of new certifications for these other types of systems, registration systems, other things, are potentially going to help us in that field as well. Right. And those potentially are connected to the Internet in yep. some cases. So we do have to have extra security in those in those areas. You're right. We've never actually had any evidence of any voting machine been hacked into. Nobody's presented that. And if they did, we would certainly investigate it and find out how that could possibly happen. Well, there are what we call white hat hackers who take machines and they try to break into them. They pretend to be the bad guys and they look for ways to get into the machines. That's why we're going to be requiring penetration testing. And we hope to be starting up what's called a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program, which looks for those possible weak places that somebody might be able to you know, use to get into the machines. So there's a lot of technical questions, but I wanted to ask uh, Commissioner McCormick, you know, describe, you know, one of the most popular, I would say, programs that the EAC has is the National Poll Worker Recruitment yeah. Day. And talk to us a little bit about the genesis of that and why that's important and what the EAC is trying to do with that. So this was an idea that came up a little bit before the pandemic, actually. We had been hearing for many years from election officials across the country that they were having a lot of difficulty recruiting and retaining poll workers to work with them. It takes a lot of people to run an election. On election day, it takes about a million people across the country to run polling places. 
And in a primary, it's less. It's probably 600, 700,000 people. That's a lot of people that you need to recruit to run elections across the country. And that's left up to generally local election officials who have to go out and work with the political parties to get people to work at the polls. Generally, we tried to keep it as balanced as possible and you know, have a 50-50 bipartisan workforce. But it has been something that's been difficult. Our, our poll workers' average age is over 60 you know, across the country. During the pandemic, that became an acute situation because a lot of those folks didn't want to expose themselves to the COVID problem. And, you know, we had to recruit even more people for the 2020 election. And I just, you know, I think it was actually on a conversation with you. I had a brain flare and said, why don't we have a national poll worker recruitment day? And we brought this to the commission and we all agreed this was something that is of immense importance that we need to support recruiting and retaining the poll workers across the country. And so we started out with the first National Poll Worker Recruitment Day in 2020, and we've added Help America Vote Day. Sort of every six months, we have either one or the other, and that is to help recruit for primaries, but also to be used for voter education and, and hopefully to get the message out to folks that we need the help and this is a great way to serve your country. And so please, please volunteer to be a poll worker. Well, we are, again, a, a series of conversations we're going to have with each of the election assistance commissioners. We are very glad you have joined us for this first part, uh, but we always end with asking our guests a couple questions. So I'll, sure. I'll ask one and, and Don can bring us out. And the first one is, before you got into elections, uh, well, how, how did you get into elections? That would be the first thing. And then if you could think of yourself before you got into elections and what you didn't know and what you would tell yourself, what would that be? So I got into elections in 1988. I was living in East Haven, Connecticut, and they were looking for help for people to come help them register voters. And so I volunteered to be an assistant voter registrar. I moved from Connecticut to Virginia not long after, a few years later, and actually worked as an assistant voter registrar in Virginia, in York County, Virginia as well. So I guess I was five when I started in this business because it's a long time ago, 30-something years, 36 years that I've been doing working on elections. And then, you know, once I started in this career, you know, I've been through other, other positions as well, but I got recruited to work from the Virginia Attorney General's office to go work on voting issues in the Department of Justice and spent almost 10 years there. And then now I've been nine years at the commission. So it's been a, a, a long career. What so what would, so tell what would myself, you tell your five-year-old self? That's my five-year-old <laughs> self, I would tell, you know, just you need to be resilient. When I first started in this business, people weren't that interested in elections. There wasn't this scrutiny that election officials are now undergoing. Everything's changed over those 37 years, and we do need to be more resilient. We need to pay more attention to what's what's out there in the media and just be tough. We're here to serve the, the country and to serve democracy, and it's a worthwhile job. And be willing to make sacrifices because I will say this, that across the country, we have amazing people working in elections who don't get paid a lot, who spend 24-7 thinking about elections and how they can make them better. It's a nonstop job. It's not a job where you can take a machine out of a closet once a year and, and have people vote and stuff it back in the closet. This is a really complex job with a lot of different 
moving aspects, parts. moving parts, requires all kinds of expertise and things you never thought you had to become an expert in. Now you have to be an expert in IT and communications and human resources and all kinds of different subject matter. And it's a big job. I just admire all the election officials out there and, and the dedication that they have to this process. So I get to end it on a lighter note, John and Chairwoman McCormick. So, you know, what unusual or humorous event occurred during your career in elections that you would like to share with us? You know, we all have one of those. We well, just there's crack all up kinds of things, actually. I know, I give mean, us one I don't or know two. About Do tell. Funny. Yes. <laughs> I did have one time I was doing election coverage. I won't say which state, but I had a rental car and someone purposely, I wasn't in the car, slammed into the car to the car in protest of the Department of Justice being there. I was very concerned about like, how do I fill out all this government paperwork? How am I going to explain this? There's damage to this rental car. And I called in and they said, well, get the paperwork from, from the rental car agency. So I took it to the rental car agency. They didn't care at all. Never gave me a single bit of paperwork. So I never had to explain that which thank goodness, because it was quite a bit of damage and I was a little worried about that. But I would say some of the more interesting things for me were in Iraq. You know, when we went out for elections uh, observation, we were followed by uh, a whole gang of kids, like little kids carrying AK-47s running alongside us. That was pretty eye-opening and dangerous. We also had intelligence that there were going to be suicide bombers hiding bombs under women hiding bombs under their burqas. Uh, so we had to set up tents outside of every single election lo location, polling location in Iraq. And I was the only female on my observation team. So I was the one who got to go into the tent to check to make sure that they were actually searching people for those bombs. And that was a little scary too. We also had an earthquake and we did have some bombs go off in, in Baghdad. But you know, in the U.S., just funny observation things happen. You know, people are jokesters out there, but it's been good. It's been really good. Christine thank McCormick, thank you for joining us in the voting booth, the chairwoman of the Election Assistance Commission. Thank you, John. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hun Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.